So I wanted to share some thoughts tonight with you all. And then I always like to talk for a little bit and then open it up for either time for questions, comments, or even occasionally a little bit of a small group discussion. Uh, I think it's really important for the Sangha to interact, which I like to see everyone kind of talking. And <laughs> and I it felt, I've been in Peru the last few weeks, and so I just got back uh, the day before yesterday, and I hadn't really been looking at the news or much, and then... <laughs> And then I looked at the news and I thought, oh, wow, now I'm going to have to give more and more talks on grief. It feels like that's all I ever talk about in Oakland in, anymore is how to deal with the suffering of this time, this place, what's going on in our world, what's going on in the urban communities. And I started to feel like, oh, I don't want to always talk about that. As I reflected on it, I thought about different ways to talk about it and what's happening, but really weaving that in with the Dharma and what's especially this idea of taking refuge and to reflect on what does it mean to say true refuge and also what does it mean when we say true refuge when we're in samsara. <laughs> we're not in nibbana. <laughs> we're not... <laughs> We're in samsara, right? <laughs> Something's always going wrong in samsara. There's always the leak in the boat. And how do we kind of open to that truth? And also include this topic of the wisdom of diversity. And what, what can that bring to us? And I've gone through a lot of levels with this, having been around Spirit Rock for 20 years. Uh, I look younger than I am, actually. <laughs> Believe it or not, I've been in Spirit Rock for 20 years now. And um, I've seen so much evolution with this topic. And, you know, and I'm, I've, I've not really had much to comment on it other than to start a community in Oakland. That was my kind of solution, was I'll just live it there. We'll do it there. We'll create, you know, community in all these different ways. And so I wanted to also weave that in when we talk about Buddha Dharma Sangha, Sangha, and why did the Buddha say the Sangha was a gem, one of the most precious gems? What can we learn by that? I think in the West, there's a real uh, tendency towards isolationism as the jewel. <laughs> the individual is the jewel, me alone, myself and I. <laughs> I don't, all you people stay out, this is my little nook. And I don't know if we get so awakened like that, actually. I have seen that as real limitations to that. And I think that's something I really like about Peru and Peruvians. You know, they're, they're like, I go to these families, I go out to villages, and there's like 10 people happily, they all sleep in two hammocks together at the end of the night. It's like, wow, this is a lot of togetherness, right? But then I look at the outcome of that, right? There's sort of this natural joy and this natural kindness. Without them even trying, they might not have this depth of understanding of Buddhist psychology, but what there is, is there's natural paramis. There's kindness, happiness, there's compassion, there's, this, there's these other qualities that are being developed. They don't have to work on that. 
go to a retreat and go, I'm going to work on generosity, <laughs> right? Or work on meta or work on forgiving somebody, right? It just kind of happens in this flow of being. And so there's sort of this new way, I think this new emergence of consciousness coming and there's something shifting. And we know from ecology uh, deep ecology, it's one of my passions is looking at nature and ecology and systems theory, that any time that a system starts to shift, that it goes into a state of chaos right before. And so when we look at these systems maybe in our world right now, systems that may be unjust that have been happening for long periods of time and sort of the shadows, these systemic things actually start to come out in order to free them. They're energies. Oppression is energy of, you know, and so these layers are coming out. And I think that how we respond to it is how we respond to our internal systems of oppression. How do we how do we grow from that? And how does the Dharma how can we meet this Dharma in this real practical way? Isn't that always the question? Like how, you know, do I go off on the mountaintop right now? Is that the answer? You know, do I go on the front line? Is that the answer? <laughs> do I get arrested? Do I just lock myself in my room and watch Netflix and eat chocolate? Is that the answer? Right? We have all these responses, right? Do I go to retreat? And I think somehow there's the, the blending of all of it. So I wanted to not shy away from talking about things, but also not shy away from the bigger picture. Because there's the, there's the story that's happening and then there's the great story, <laughs> right? There's this, you know, there's the truth of the, this moment to moment and there's violence and the reaction to violence and there's all these different factors and somehow it's our karma, all of our karma to bear witness to this right now. If you're born now and you have a heart and you're paying attention, this is our teaching. All of us, no matter who you are, we're impacted. We are, our nervous system is impacted because we are interconnected. So this is a, this can be a very important time where we can grow from these difficulties. We can use them to awaken something. And I'm a firmer, firm believer in that, that the shadow is the doorway to the light. The darkness the, is what needs to be illuminated, what needs to awaken. So let's think about how to embrace this in a different way. So I love this Hopi creation story. So it says, the creator gathered all of creation and said, I want to hide something from the humans until they're ready for it. It is the realization that they create their own reality. The eagle said, give it to me. I will take it to the moon. The creator said, no, one day they will go there and they'll find it. So the salmon said, I will bury it at the bottom of the ocean. The creator said, no, they will go there too. They'll find it. The giant buffalo said, I will bury it out on the great plains. The creator said, no, they will cut into the skin of the earth and they will find it even there. And then grandmother mole who lives in the breast of Mother Earth and who has no physical eyes but sees with spiritual eyes said, put it inside of them. And the Creator said, it is done. 
So I like that, right? Because in some way, that's what the Buddha is saying too. <laughs> if the Buddha was to write a creation story, he would say, all of this we've created, all of this we're unraveling, and we ourselves are projecting it, right? The, great, the grand movie, uh, the architect, right? The house builder, <laughs> right? We discover that. And so how do we uh, work with this idea as we traverse our path with heart and with this uh, depth of understanding, wisdom, and compassion. And also the teachings of the Triple Gem. I can't imagine anything more important right now than taking refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha. And often people don't reflect on the refuges that much. It's something we say at the beginning of retreats, right? <laughs> We're like, now the refuges, and we all chant them, <laughs> right? Sanam, Buddham, Sanam, Gachami, Dardwam, Sarman, Gachami, Sangam, Saman. And we may not even take it in, like, what that really means. But this idea of taking refuge is vast, deep, and very profound. And it's something that we do on deeper and deeper levels as the understanding of reality we see on deeper levels. It leads to taking refuge again. Like, wow, we see the size of the, size of the cloth, right? And we go, oh my gosh, and we take refuge again. And so I just want to kind of highlight a few things that I think are important about it. And you can take refuge in your own way, whatever that means for you. It's unique for everybody. You don't even have to so much, I would say, identify necessarily as a Buddhist. This could be taken from many different perspectives. But when we say Buddha, what are we saying? We're talking about the awakened consciousness. That which is awake is what we want to take refuge in, even when we don't see it. That's the key. What we're doing is it, it actually taking refuge is about faith. Right? We're going to take refuge in this awakened heart. Even though I don't recognize it right now, I'm going to align my life. And when we say refuge, we always, always imagine you know, being shipwrecked. And that's the image my Tibetan teacher used to use. He used to say, spring, imagine seven billion people drowning in the ocean of samsara flailing around, and you could kind of see that on our planet, right? <laughs> seven billion people, right? Not sharing which direction to go. And then suddenly there's this island, but not everybody can see the island. But somehow those who are able to see it are like, oh my gosh, an island, right? And how happy we'd be if we've been shipwrecked in the ocean flailing around. We'd be so joyful to find this island. And actually that is the imagery that's used about taking refuge, is that we find this place that is stable in the midst of change. The Buddha says over and over again, everything is subject to change. We live on a house of cards. Anything can happen at any time, right? Our death is certain, time unknown. We're healthy today. We might not be tomorrow. These are fundamental truths, right? Are we don't know what's going to happen in the, the grand scheme of things, right? Are we going to witness a glorious rebirth or the ending of something that we witness, right? We don't really know. But what the Buddha does count on, or what he says is a jewel, is solid, is countable, are these three refuges. He said, this is something that is stable. And I feel like that's really profound, right? So no stability, yet these things actually as the, are at the heart of the Dharma as a stable place. And they're stable through all the traditions. 
The Tibetans take refuge, the Zen community takes refuge, the Mahayanas take refuge, the, every tradition does this. So there's a sort of fundamental agreement here, which is great. There's places of a lot of agreement, actually, but taking refuge is a profound uh, basis, I guess you could say. And so when we say refuge, what we're doing is we're taking refuge in that part of us that we don't recognize fully yet, but we start to trust is there. And I think this is really important, having grown up around a fundamental Christian background. My family, uh, my, I'm African-American, and then my mother's German, but my African-American side, they were very Baptist. <laughs> and uh, early on, I was like, I don't know about this, these beliefs. You know, I started to question them early on. One of the core issues I had was that there, I was fundamentally flawed. And I, could, I couldn't reconcile that. And I can remember as a very young age, well, how is that possible? And when I heard the Dharma, when I was very young, I thought, this is more in alignment, the Buddha saying, you're enlightened, but you forgot. Yes, that seems much more true. <laughs> Isn't that more hopeful? I mean, gosh, imagine when I was young hearing, like, no matter what you do, you can crawl on the desert, beg, you're still going to be, you know, worthless, pretty much. I couldn't, I was like, what, <laughs> what, how does that, you know, so I was very happy when I heard the teachings of the Dharma for the first time in the early 20s. I thought, this is finally something that makes sense that I could see in myself because I saw good qualities. And I saw good qualities even in people who were being destructive actually around me. Even people who were very suffering. I still saw these beautiful qualities every now and then. We see that. I think it's important to see that. So, uh, you know, Suzuki Roshi used to always tell his students that he was saying, he would look at them and say, uh, you're all perfect, perfect, but you have work to do. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's, that's like what we want to see is that at the heart of ourselves, there's this beauty and this light. And I think that's, that's really important to see on a deep level. And there's a part of us, I think, that still believes in this original sin. Like we believe like at our core, I'm messed up. There's a very deep fundamental belief. I used to work with very young children and they would have this belief already. Like somehow at the my core, I'm wrong, I'm not good, something's bad, something's wrong. Do you know what I mean by that? That becomes the root of the self-hatred, which is an epidemic in the West, I would say. This, this disorder of the ego structure coming out and turning against itself in this very profound way, right? Just the battle starts. And so this, I believe, is rooted because of that. I think because of years of that belief has just woven its way into our psyche. And this new view that we're enlightened but we forgot is relatively new, <laughs> right? This is a new concept coming in. It's a new system. So the idea that we can take refuge in that and how I started to know that this was fundamentally true is I would watch people on retreats. I think, well, fundamentally, if they were bad at their core, that badness would show more and more as the retreat went on. <laughs> they would get worse, but then I would see this progression of more love, more compassion, more, you know how you leave a retreat, everyone runs down the hill like, yay, right? <laughs> There's a sense of just this openness. And I would say, yes, that is much more like true nature. 
right? Even though you go home and you forget, that's our problem. Five minutes later, we forgot, you know. See, again, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. The forgetting is separate. So the reason we want to take refuge, I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in this consciousness, is to remember it. Right? We remember it. We pay homage to it. We put an altar on the table to, at our desk or something to remember that even when my mind is insane, there is this innate purity that has never been obscured. Where confusion was never born. The way they describe the mind is unborn radiance. Purity, right? Beautiful language. Right? It has nothing to do with what's obscuring that. That's not the truth. That's just temporary. So it's important not to get mixed up with the temporary with what is innate. That's a, two very different things. So to see this Buddha nature in every human being is also something of a challenge. Even when somebody's acting in an insane way. And I remember this, I, I don't know what, why this is coming to me right now, but there is a story from the Buddha's life. I don't know if many of you know it. His cousin, Devadatta, became his mortal enemy. You know this sutta? <laughs> so Devadatta started off being one of the Buddha's beautiful, beloved uh, disciples. And then slowly he started to turn against the Buddha. And it started to happen, and there's all these suttas about it. But slowly what he did one day was he began to say, actually, you're wrong, I'm right. <laughs> he actually developed a lot of powers, right, through concentration. And he basically one day told half of the Sangha that they were with to come with him, and the Buddha's terrible, he's the liar. And he confused maybe 500 or 1,000 monks, and half of them wandered out with Devadatta. And so they say that the Buddha sat down, and he turned to Ananda. He said, wow, it looks a little thin. Where is everybody, right? And he's like, wow, well, your cousin came and told them, you know, you're horrible, and da-da-da-da. So the Buddha, of course, really was like, oh, yeah, okay, it'll pass. He never seemed to have a problem with these things. Like, oh, right, the truth will be revealed. Always the truth will be revealed. And so, but then it got worse. Then Devadatta decided he wanted to kill the Buddha. So he decided the Buddha was walking along this road one day and there was this really frightening elephant that would scare people. It was an elephant that was sort of deranged and would attack people and run them over when he would see people. And so Devadatta somehow with his powers got this elephant directly on the road where the Buddha was walking and he let it go, right, as the Buddha was coming. And Devadatta was like, yeah, it's going to kill the Buddha. But then the Buddha reached out with metta and then the elephant bows and like they have a love story, right, and becomes like his protector, of course, right. But the Buddha was aware Devadatta did that. So then he tried again, to kill the Buddha. So the Buddha was up on a hill doing walking meditation, and Devadatta was looking down, seeing. And of course, the Buddha knew he was there, but the Buddha was just slowly going back and forth, doing sitting and walking practice, and Devadatta pushed a stone out to try to push it on top of him. And it fell, and it brushed the side of the Buddha's toe, and it, a little drop of blood came out. And because he had done that with such cruelty, it was an immediate karma. So the story goes, the earth opened up. And David Otto went, ah, 
and fell down. But as he's going, the Buddha said, one day, Devadatta, you will become a Buddha long time from now. Like something like, I see a million trillion eons. <laughs> and that was his response. Like, even you, Devadatta, one day after all this delusion is over, you still have Buddha nature, right? Like there's still that goodness in you. And so I think that's something I like to reflect on. Like, wow, everybody has this potential. And so also when we take refuge in the Dharma, what we're really taking refuge is, is also in these profound teachings. Not only the collection of the Buddhist teachings of truth, but all traditions have these threads of beauty in them, forgiveness, compassion, this depth of understanding, um, and somehow we begin to take refuge more and more in the teachings of the heart. And I wanted to say something about the diversity piece, about my own journey a little bit, because this has actually been a very profound teaching for me. When 10 years ago we opened our center in Oakland, and um, there was a lot of support from Spirit Rock as we moved to open this community, and our community there is run only on donation. Aldana, and that itself is kind of a miracle. People try to talk us out of that. Like, you can't really have a system like that in an area like that. But we, I just knew that it would work. I just had no doubt about that. And um, so when I first got there, it was like, okay, we're going to have these communities, and we'll have these communities for communities of color. We'll have LGBT. We'll be a refuge for all the people who feel that are unwanted or something. You know, like we had a every mind, every body, sangha. And, um, and then I thought, yes, yeah, see, I'm so open. Look, all these people come. I thought I was open. And then you know what started to happen? We had a group of people come to us who had multiple chemical sensitivities. And they said, what about us? And then we had Spanish-speaking people come to us and say, what about us? And then suddenly, all these communities, and I started to think, well, I don't know how to fit everybody in. <laughs> and then we had a group of people who were uh, transsexual, and they said, what about us, Spring? We need something. And I started to feel, in that moment, these barriers on my love. It was like, oh, well, I only can go this far. And then what started to happen to me was like, through diversity, through so many different types of people coming with needs, I thought it was a feel that my heart was expanding. I was like, yes, I can include you all. <laughs> yes, I can even include, yes, wait, I can. And you know what I've learned? That actually what diversity does is it forced my heart open more than what I thought it could ever grow to. So it's like, yes, I love you too. And all these people were coming with their different needs and they were like, how we, we have this special thing and we need this and it's not accessible, so Spring, can you change this? And I would find resistance and then I would melt it. <laughs> like, of course, it's for you. What do you need? And that would open my heart even more. And so now I have seen that um, this quality is such a teaching for us is how do we love? And I, I see this as a tremendous gift now, not as a place of conflict, but as a place where how can I grow? How can I learn? And so I just wanted to mention that. Um, I'm writing an article about how I open my heart through more and more people. 
And now when I travel the world, I think, okay, the person who maybe is cleaning my toilet in a hotel I'm at, it's like, how can I let them in my heart, right? It's like when we say love all beings, what are we saying to ourselves here? <laughs> you see, when we practice these teachings, we mean all beings, not just our little kind of clique that we have coffee with that are just like us. Because that's kind of easy, right? It's when it's more complex, when people are asking things of us, then we get tired. Oh, no, I don't want I, I can't deal with it. But there is something really profound about widening your circle, widening your circle, widening your circle. Also, what I learned from different people is a mirror. This is really profound. And this is what I wanted to just share a little bit about, was this idea of teachings as a mirror. So Albert Einstein, I love some of his quotes in the later part of his life. He said, our task must be to free ourselves by widening our circle of compassion, to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature and its beauty. I think that's sweet, but the only way to do that is to engage. <laughs> and every person that I look at becomes a reflection of my own mind. What am I resisting right now? What am I pushing out? What do I not want to look at? What do I want to close off to? And if I could just keep opening that door, I grow. I grow, right? I'm learning. So there's something really beautiful about this movement to be inclusive, to be equal, to every being matters. Every being is equal to the next. To not be in alignment with that is, I think, fundamental delusion, right? It's, it's not the teachings, right? It's not that. And so I think the Buddha had his own issues with this because when he became, started his monastic community, he mixed people of all different class systems. And that was insanely uh, controversial in his time. He had the lowest caste mixed with the highest caste. And was like, okay. And I wanted to tell you all about another sutta that I don't think is well known. So the Buddha had another relative who ordained, uh, who was from his princely palace life. And he said, okay, yes, I'm happy to ordain you, cousin. Yes, come, show up at this time bring your robes. Now, all of them wore the same type of robes. All of them came with the same bowls. But his cousin came with a fancy silk robe on and a pottery and all glamorous bowl to be his ordination. <laughs> so he, he looked better than everybody else, right? And the Buddha went, no, no, cousin, right? <laughs> you are the same as this person here. And this person, and he went through this whole teaching around that. And um, to also ordain women was extremely controversial, right? So he, in some way, destroyed the class system at that time. And unfortunately, it has gone on. It was reinstated. But for that period of time, that was huge to have everybody together. Women, men, all different classes. There's something very profound in that. So we could take refuge in the Dharma, especially in times like now when things are difficult, where do we go for wisdom? And can we stay remembering the teachings of the truth? It's almost like we have to hold the light brighter in these times. I've thought about this. Uh, last month, Jack came over to the East Bay 
and Alice Walker, who is a dear friend of mine, and she's been a very close benefactor, and she's also one of Jack's closest friends, the writer and author. And they did a benefit for us. I don't know if some of you might have been there. And it was called Fierce Love in the Times of Conflict. And it was so beautiful hearing Alice because some of the questions that people had in the audience was, what I, what, how do I love people who hate me, Alice? And this was right after the shooting that happened in Florida. And so there was a lot of our community were very hurt by that. It was like a few days later. And... Um, and she talked about going around in the civil rights era. You know, she was doing voter registration and she was friends with Dr. King. Uh, they had hung out together and had, had many conversations and even danced together. There was like this whole thing. And um, she talked about going to the South. She was from Georgia, but she went back to Alabama and Mississippi to do voter registration. And she was terrified because she had married an affluent Jewish lawyer, which was against the law and he was there doing voter registration with her and they were getting death threats every day in fact the Ku Klux Klan left hate mail in their mailbox under their mat and they were just prepared to die at any moment basically but she they were so happy she said they would have these parties and they would say if we die like this then so be it but we're going to stand with these people they just felt so committed to the rightness of that we're going to stand. And um, they felt that it was like such this love there. And I think in some weird way, these times are sort of paralleling that. People are feeling the need to stand with others, risk their lives. And it's like a mini civil rights era happening. You know, some, something's trying to free itself. So if we can stand with compassion with that, I think that that's the most important response. I don't know of any other. A lot of the community during that talk, Jack gave these tremendously important teachings on forgiveness. And it was almost like a thousand people were there and they just cooled off. <laughs> you know, there was this, well, how do we respond? You know, and it's this compassion, forgiveness. That's a fierce heart. And it was so beautiful to see that people could have courage, the courage to stand with. So I think our, being, our willingness to stand in our teachings is really important right now. And then as we move down into taking refuge in the Sangha, this is the most important thing. Thich Nhat Hanh's beautiful quote, the new Buddha is the Sangha. I like that. Right? Is this community rising, community rising? And don't you see this everywhere? I see this a lot with young people gathering and moving into communities, farming together, redoing things, living off the grid, starting all these communities, living together, sharing together. Your sangha is really going to be your refuge, no matter what stage of life you are. So as you get older, you need to be with your sangha. Right? So some of the teachers here are aging and they're all thinking, where are we going to live? We'll just move at Spirit Rock. <laughs> right? <laughs> what are we going to do? And we're like, of course, that's a great idea. Right? <laughs> where else? Go alone somewhere? No, you should be in your sangha. You're actually, your sangha needs you. You, you. you are needed. And so when we're young, we need our community. When we're born, we need our community. As we age, it's an illusion to think that we can do it alone. It's a fundamental delusion. Actually, the Buddha lived his whole life in community. Other than the years he was trying to get fully enlightened, even then he had small groups around him. But he was not 
preaching the mountaintop isolated life. It was always in the community. If you read the heart of the teachings in the Pali Canon, it's filled with stories of the community, how they learned together, what would happen, how that became a teaching, how the evolve, evolution of this learned from the community. So to see value in these beautiful people that you sit with, that you go on retreat with, I think there's something really important to reflect on and how we can grow that and nurture that. In difficult times, where do you go? You could just say something out loud. In difficult times, where do you go? <laughs> Home? Yeah. So when you, when beyond that, where do you go? Don't you call a friend? <laughs> you reach out, right? Ideally, that's what we would do, get support. I'm very lucky. I feel so blessed that I've had so many wise people in my life right now that when I need to call somebody, I can just call somebody and get some really good wisdom. Like, ah, and what do I call them? Because I forget something. So they say, remember awareness. Oh, thank you. I call Jack, remember the heart. I call Joseph, he says, emptiness. Oh, thank you, emptiness, yes, yes. I call Sylvia, just be with Meta with it. <laughs> right? It's like everybody has this flavor. It's like, yes, okay, you know, and this is really important. The Buddha said that this is the most precious gem, this Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. The Sangha being pivotal to this beautiful community that's evolving. If our world gets more fractured, we have to learn to work together. The age of the isolated individual, the go-it-alone pioneer is, is over. It's going to be how many of us can work together <laughs> and solve these problems now? How many of us can create a food source? How many of us can grow together? How many of us can live together? So I think that that's really important. So lastly, I want to um, just read this quote by Mahatma Gandhi. It's very popular, but I just think it's so sweet because in some way he promoted all of these the practice of seeing ourselves in the highest way, the Dharma, and definitely the Sangha. So he says, I offer you peace, I offer you love, I offer you friendship, I see your beauty, I hear your need, I feel your feelings. My wisdom flows from the highest source. I salute that source in you. Let us work together for unity and love. I just love that. It's so simple. So what I'd like to do now is just have you turn to people around you. Let's do it to groups of three or four. And let's make a group of three or four. And just to talk about this for a few moments, about what is it that you take refuge in. And thinking about this, taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, just maybe reflect with each other what that means for you at this time in our society, in this time in your own life. So... Um, Okay, everybody, don't be too scared about that. We can just pull up next to each other. <laughs> we'll just take a few minutes here. <laughs>
Okay, everybody. Okay, we're going to start wrapping up, but it's beautiful to see. So thank you, everybody. I hope that was helpful. Was that good to talk to people about this? Was it good? Yeah, it's helpful. These are your fellow path walkers, right? It's almost like, you know, we're running a relay race, and then there's all those people on the side with Gatorade who come just to give everyone water, and we're like, thank you. <laughs> I guess you have to be into that kind of thing, but people just come just to give that. So much kindness around us. There's so much... Even this seems, I just want to end on that note that there could seem like so much violence, but in the midst of it, there's so much love and kindness everywhere. Everywhere I go, anytime I walk in any room, people are, how can I help? Do you need some tea? Walking in here, Mark, do you need anything? Do you need tea? How can we help? It's important also to see that, right? That's also the lens that we look through, that there's so much kindness around us. And to hold that truth and that, even though it's a paradox, we have to hold both. The 10,000 joys, the 10,000 sorrows, that's samsara. Everybody gets all of it, no one exempt, right? You got rich people samsara and poor people samsara. It hurts, all the same though. So I want to just end with... Um, Thich Nhat Hanh's poem. I just felt like I was reading this earlier and I just wanted to end with it because I do believe that in the end of the day, compassion will save us all. And the heart of the Buddhas is the heart of a compassion. And that is somehow our goal and our task. So Thich Nhat Hanh writes in his poem, Please Call Me By My True Names. He says, I have a poem for you. This poem is about three of us. The first is a 12-year-old girl, one of the boat people crossing the Gulf of Siam. She was raped by a sea pirate, and after, she threw herself into the sea. The second person is the sea pirate, who was born in a remote village in Thailand. And the third person is me. I was very angry, of course, but I could not take sides against the sea pirate. If I could have, it would have been easier, but I couldn't. I realized that if I had been born in his village and had lived a similar life, economic, educational, and so on, it is likely that I would now be that sea pirate. It is not easy to take sides. Out of suffering, I wrote this poem. It is called, Please Call Me By My True Names because I have many names, and when you call me by any of them, I have to say yes. Don't say that I will depart tomorrow. Even today, I am still arriving. Look deeply every second I am arriving to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird 
with still fragile wings, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river. I am the bird that swoops down to swallow the mayfly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond. And I am the grass snake that silently feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. You see, I am the 12-year-old girl refugee on a small boat who threw herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands, and I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people, dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes my flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and my laughter at once so that I can see my joy and my pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. Oh, money pod me home. <laughs> Thank you, Thich Nhat Hanh. <laughs> Thank you, beautiful community, for your attention. May we all open to compassion. And yeah, it's beautiful to be with you all tonight. And so have a safe night. We'll end there. May our practice be for the benefit of all beings everywhere. Jive safely. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.